It's August 1962. Auckland Prison, Baremorimo, New Zealand. Located on the North Shore, the maximum security prison is surrounded by river inlets and ensconced in green, rolling bushlands and thick forests. It's a magnificent sight, but one the prisoners can only imagine. For the most part, all they see are cold stone walls, metal bars, and cement floors. Today, Leo Hannon, a 61-year-old convict, is about to meet with his lawyer, a man named George Joseph. Over a decade ago, back in 1950, Hannon was convicted for the murder of a railway worker in Wellington and was given a life sentence. Joseph has been an occasional visitor over the years and is one of the few people in this world that Hannon trusts. So when the convict recently discovered that he's dying of cancer, there was really only one man he could turn to. The cell door opens. Hannon, lying on his bed, raises his gingery gray head to see the guard and his lawyer. Joseph is a tall, middle-aged man with salt and pepper hair. Hannon, on the other hand, is thinner and much weaker since they met last. He struggles to sit up. It's hardly a comfortable place to live out your last days, but after a lifetime of drifting, it's the first place that's ever felt like home to Hannon. This prison is where he belongs and where he is happy to die. But now, facing death, his thoughts weigh heavily. Hannon shifts in his metal cot nervously. He doesn't know where to start. You see, for over two decades, he has harbored a terrible secret. His lawyer hovers in silence before eventually sitting. Perhaps the lawyer senses what's coming, even if Hannon doesn't know how to start. Finally, Joseph asks him if there's anything he wants to tell him. Hannon lifts his head and slowly nods. He eventually locks his pale blue eyes onto the lawyers, staring intently, as if looking for something. After a few seconds, Hannon sighs a deep, mournful sigh and admits he had planned to tell Joseph before the end anyway. Still holding the lawyer's gaze, Hannon says, I've done some bloody awful things in my life. The cops don't know the half of it. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Leo Hannon, a man who was lonely and violent. It's about a series of murders that baffled local police in Wairoa, New Zealand and how he was finally apprehended for another seemingly unrelated crime. It's also about a son who, reading a confession decades later, might finally be able to put old ghosts to rest. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. What Hannon confesses to his lawyer in confidence in 1962 will turn out to be a stunning revelation. Linking a string of long-forgotten cold cases dating back to the 1940s, brutal, savage crimes that shocked a small New Zealand town and haunted the investigating detective, John Bruce Young, to the end of his days. But can Hannon's confession be trusted? And what will George Joseph do with the information? Unsure of how to proceed, Joseph will refer to this self-confessed serial killer simply as Client X. But for how long will the mystery continue? Leo Hannon is born on October 23, 1900 in New Zealand. He is a red-haired, blue-eyed boy and the youngest of eight children. From what little information there is, it seems clear that his formative years were no easy ride. His parents are Edmund and Annie Hannon, Irish immigrants from the county of Cork who moved to New Zealand in 1877. Hannon's father is a carpenter, and his family is respected within the community. Not much is known about their family life, but sadly, it appears they don't think much of little Leo. To the frustration of his parents, he struggles at school and fails to keep up. Making friends is also difficult. He appears to be a misfit and becomes a lonely and isolated child. As he gets older, his family distances themselves from him and eventually abandons him, leaving him to his own devices. Hannon's problems continue into adulthood. Holding down a stable job is difficult. Failing to master a profession, he becomes itinerant. He wanders around the North Island of New Zealand, taking work as cheap labor wherever he can find it. By 1926, now in his mid-twenties, it appears that Hannon has become a delinquent. He has taken to committing petty crimes, mostly theft and burglary. One day, Hannon attempts to break into a safe but is caught red-handed. He's arrested and sentenced to months of hard labor at Rangapo Prison. But Hannon has no intention of serving his time quietly. He soon manages to escape. But in 1931, he's caught thieving again and serves the full 18-month sentence. Over the next 12 years, Hannon continues to go in and out of prison for theft and burglary. And that seems to be the sorry story of Leo Hannon. A circular pattern of grim inevitability, a cycle of crime and punishment. 
As Hannon approaches his 40s, he is free once more. But free to do what exactly? It's a question that will haunt New Zealand for decades. It's Saturday, August 8th, 1942. Wairoa in Hawke's Bay. The small, sleepy town is located in the northernmost part of the cove, perched on the edge of the Pacific's crystal blue waters, surrounded by lush forests and fertile farmlands. It's an idyllic location. The kind of place where townsfolk all know each other by name, but generally mind their own business. The kind of place where crimes are few and far between. It's just outside Wairoa where Leo Hannon, now aged 41, finds himself working on a farm. And tonight, as usual, he has come to town to get a drink. Workmen crowd the tables and bar of a dimly lit pub. A roaring fire and pints of beer warm up the clientele from the chilly temperatures outside as winter lingers on. Hannon sits at the bar, slouched over a half-drunk glass of gin. His graying stubble and matted ginger hair might give the impression of a drifter. But with laborers and farmers all around him, he hardly sticks out. He chats with the men on either side of him. It's easy to imagine their conversation, complaining about their work, the cold, the wet weather, and not being paid enough. But their conversation is abruptly ended when someone bursts through the front door and into the pub, bringing a cold chill in with them. Standing in the entrance is a tall woman with graying hair, dressed in a Salvation Army uniform. Everyone knows her. Brigadier Annie Smith, the 64-year-old who commands the local corps. Eyes are quickly averted and heads turn away. Annie's reputation precedes her. The Bible-thumping, anti-drink, anti-gambling, anti-everything busybody is well-known and generally disliked. Rumor has it she even managed to break up a marriage where she felt a woman's husband spent too much time in the pub. But there's another reason the locals don't care for Annie Smith. Before she came to Wairoa, she spent 30-odd years as a missionary in Japan. Now, with the country caught up in the Second World War, Japan is the enemy on their doorstep. And despite the deaths of Wairoa men overseas, Annie has remained steadfast in her sympathy for the Japanese. In the pub, Annie wastes no time launching into a sermon. She shouts at the patrons about the perils of drinking. She tells the men that they ought to give up their vices or they will go to hell. Her righteous condemnation is met with laughter and derision. Some even call her names. Hannon remains quiet, eye fixed on his gin, apparently disinterested. After a few minutes, the customers cheer as she gives up and leaves. But Annie remains the topic of conversation at the bar. There's plenty of gossip about her and her elderly sister, Rosamond. Hannon begins to take interest. But his ears really prick up when one man gripes about the two women having lots of dough stashed away somewhere. Finishing off his gin, Leo Hannon puts on his cap, nods his farewells, and steps out into the winter night. What he's thinking of, or what he's planning to do next, is anyone's guess. But he won't be seen 
or heard from again for many years. And yet, as he moves quietly past the dim, lamplit windows of Wairoa, Leo Hannon casts a dark shadow that will remain long after he has departed. It's August 21st, 1942. It's been 13 days since Annie Smith stormed into the Wairoa pub to condemn its drinkers. No one has seen or heard from Annie, nor her sister Rosamond, since the 8th. But this absence doesn't appear to raise many concerns. In fact, it appears to have gone entirely unnoticed. But this morning, that is about to change. A neighbor of the Smiths heads over to the Salvation Army Hall, where the sisters live together in a couple of rooms at the back. His name is Arthur Farn. He is looking for his missing dog. Knowing Rosamond Smith is fond of animals, he hopes she's sheltering his pet somewhere in the building. Arthur Farn knocks on the Smith's front door a few times, but there's no answer. Trying the main entrance to the hall, where services are held, he finds it locked. This is strange, since it's usually open. Apparently determined to find his dog and spotting a partially open window to the main building, he decides to climb through. Inside, the hall is dark and empty, but his nose is instantly assaulted by a foul stench in the air. Something is terribly wrong. He covers his face as he walks towards the Smith's rooms at the back. Noticing a light in the kitchen, he reluctantly investigates. Peering round the corner, the horror is revealed. He sees the body of a woman sitting in an armchair. There's blood everywhere. He's not even sure which sister it is. The poor woman's face is badly disfigured. It gets worse. Her clothes are in disarray. Her skirt is raised and her underwear has been removed. Gasping for fresh air, Farn races outside before making his way to the police station. Within an hour, Chief Detective John Bruce Young is on the scene. The Salvation Army Hall is locked down while his team begins their investigation. The body in the chair is identified as Annie Smith. Assessing the crime scene and the state of her body, Young has to consider that a sexual assault has also taken place. It's a grotesque and disturbing scene. And tragically, it's not the only one. Rosamond, Annie's sister, is found dead in her bedroom. Like Annie, she has been beaten and her garments removed, indicating a second assault. The pathologist at the scene is a man named Dr. Lynch. Inspecting the injuries, he tells Chief Detective Young that separate weapons were likely used, one blunt and one sharp. A search of the premises is ordered. It doesn't take long for the officers to locate an axe hidden in the wash house and a fire poker in the laundry room. Both are bloodstained. Needless to say, it's a crime that will shock the small community to its core. But why would anybody do such a thing? Was this something premeditated or opportunistic? Is it a one-off or could the culprit strike again? It's up to Young to get answers, and quickly. Considering motive, robbery is quickly ruled out. 
A search of living quarters revealed 18 pounds in Annie's purse and two more pounds in some silver in Rosamond's handbag. Worth roughly $800 today, a sizable sum to leave behind. Which leaves the grim evidence of assault. Detective Young must wait for confirmation from the autopsy, but he and his team are already considering their perpetrator may be a known sexual offender. If they act fast and consult other forces, cross-referencing criminal records, they might just get lucky. A name might present itself. Meanwhile, at the morgue, pathologist Dr. Lynch confirms that the sisters have been dead for about two weeks. He puts their likely time of death as August 8th. The same day Annie Smith preached in the pub. Based on the strike pattern and injuries, Dr. Lynch is convinced that the killer is left-handed. It's not the biggest lead, but as no usable fingerprints can be recovered from the murder weapons, it's all they've got to go on. But the biggest surprise is yet to come. Chief Detective Young is told there is no evidence of sexual assault, despite both women being stripped and left exposed. Young is left mystified. It's August 22nd, 1942. Just one day since the Smith sisters were found and word has spread throughout Wairoa about the double murder, it's a shock and becomes front page news. As gossip rages, Chief Detective John Bruce Young remains focused on finding the killer. He begins interviewing acquaintances and neighbors and soon makes another shocking discovery. Actually, two shocking discoveries. To his astonishment, it seems that several individuals had gone inside the Salvation Army Hall the day after the women were murdered. The first is a lady who went to the hall to pray, but apparently did not see Annie's dead body in the chair. The second is a mother whose eight-year-old child had come home in a state on August 9th. Apparently, the youngster had wandered into the hall where they found the dead body. The mother shamefully admits she hadn't believed the child's story until now. Young can't believe his bad luck. If they had made the discovery two weeks ago, they might have nabbed the murderer straight away. After all, if people were wandering into the hall freely on August 9th, that means the killer must have returned to lock the door at a later date before slipping out again through the window. Still, most murders are committed by persons known to the victim, so Young sets about looking for local suspects with possible motives. Detective Young learns that most people who knew Annie Smith disliked her. Plenty found her domineering and judgmental. But did anyone hate her enough to kill her and her sister? Extensive interviews are conducted with hundreds of people. It's arduous work, but it speaks to Young's determination. Of the 460 people interviewed, 17 individuals are considered persons of interest. As for motive, of these potential suspects, 15 have a loved one on active military duty, and each one of them openly resented Annie Smith for her sympathies and affection for Japan. Could this be the work of a grieving relative gone berserk? Hi listeners, Estefania here. We hope you enjoy this trailer for Noiser's new show, 
Detectives Don't Sleep. Listen wherever you get your podcasts with new episodes airing every Tuesday. What makes a great detective? If you arrived at a crime scene, would you have what it takes to crack the case wide open? Would you spot the vital clue that everyone else has missed? Could you unravel the suspect's perfect alibi? And could you confront a murderer? Introducing Detectives Don't Sleep, the new whodunit podcast from Noiser. Each week, we'll take you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. You'll be right there, solving a murder on the beaches of the Bahamas, busting neo-Nazi art dealers in the back streets of Europe, and unmasking con men in Beverly Hills. These detectives, they all have one thing in common. They can never truly rest until they've closed the case. Listen to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. However, after several more interviews, it becomes clear to Young that there's no firm evidence to link any of them to the crime. Soon he's back to square one. The police post an appeal for information and even offer a cash reward, but to no avail. After several months, Chief Detective Young is left with a senseless crime with no suspects and no leads. The killer is gone without a trace. He has little choice but to concede defeat. Wairoa is left deeply scarred and forever changed by the murders of the Smith sisters. And John Bruce Young will be haunted by his failure to apprehend the culprit for years to come. Sadly, it won't be the last time the people of Wairoa, or Chief Detective Young, will be asked to face these ghosts. It's the evening of December 16, 1948. The Second World War is over, and life is beginning to return to normal. This year, tea, sugar, and meat rationing have come to an end and New Zealand's economy is booming. In Wairoa, summer has just begun. This evening, 69-year-old retired railway worker Herbert Brunton and his friend, Charles French, stagger out of a bar. They've just had a few drinks and are headed home. The pair live 20 yards apart in two disused railway huts. The two pick their way over the tracks and reach French's front door. The two say their goodbyes before Brunton shuffles unsteadily off into the night. Arriving home, Brunton clatters around inside the dark hut. It's small and cramped. He kicks several empty beer cans and wine bottles that litter the floor as he looks for his remaining gin. With no electricity nor running water, it's a sad place to call home. Maybe that's why he's not ready to stop drinking. Brunton finds the bottle of gin and takes several desperate gulps. Eventually, he passes out on the small stretcher where he sleeps. 
It's just after midnight. Charles French is woken up by a flashlight beam piercing the window of his hut. The bright white lights hit him in the face. Staggering out of bed, he sleepily goes to investigate. Just as French opens the window, the light suddenly disappears. He strains his eyes and peers into the darkness. He demands to know who's out there and what they want at this hour. He can just make out a figure standing in the distance, then a muffled voice. French strains to hear what's being said, but years of working on the railway has left him hard of hearing. He thinks they might be asking for Brunton. Without a second thought, French says, Next place is Brunton's. He points to his friend's hut. The figure walks off, leaving French to climb back into bed where he'll sleep peacefully, totally unaware of what is happening just a little way down the tracks. It's 6 a.m. and French is awake and getting ready to cycle the 15 miles to the farm where he's employed as a laborer. But before he leaves, he decides to visit Brunton. He's curious to know who the late-night visitor was. French knocks on the door, but there's no answer. When he calls out to his friend, there's still no reply. After a few moments, French pushes the door open and finds a horrifying scene. Brunton's body lies slumped on the floor, his back propped up against the bed, wearing only his underclothes. He is covered in blood. Brunton's head has been severely beaten. French can't quite believe his eyes, but there's no doubt his friend is stone dead, brutally murdered. It's not long before detectives and uniformed officers arrive at Brunton's disused railway hut. Once more, it's John Bruce Young, now Chief Inspector Young, who arrives from Wellington to lead the investigation. Entering the crime scene, it's easy to imagine Inspector Young's feeling of discomfort. Murders are few and far between in this little corner of New Zealand. Surely, memories of the poor Smith sisters come flooding back, who only six years ago were slain just three miles from here. And of course, the killer who got away. Young steps into the railway hut and into something like a horror film. Blood covers every surface, the chair, the bed, and the old sack that Brunton used as a makeshift carpet. He goes over to examine Brunton. He sees the old man's skull is split open. The pathologist notes the attacker used a sharp, heavy object. It's noted that the victim's right hand is clenched shut, suggesting the man died holding on to something. Something that was then removed. A robbery then? But looking around the shabby room, full of empty alcohol containers, Young very much doubts it. But here he pauses, taking a moment to consider the empty bottles strewn around him. Could it simply have been a bottle of booze that was in the victim's hand? That would make sense. But why take it? A trophy? Evidence? Who knows? Young sighs. Another Wairoa crime scene with more questions than answers. The police officers search the area. Once again, the murder weapon is quickly located near the hut. Barely concealed, lying in the brush, is a blood-stained axe. 
Inspector Young's blood runs cold. He's deep in thought when there's a shout from the back of the hut. Another clue. On the back door, clear as day, is a large, bloody fingerprint. Finally, unlike with the Smith sisters, at least this gives his detective something concrete to investigate, which is just as well because his only witness is of limited use. Brunton's friend, Charles French, is clearly devastated. As much as he wants to help, he cannot. He can't say whether the mysterious midnight visitor was a man or a woman, nor what they sounded like. French explains that due to his poor hearing, he heard nothing for the rest of the night. Frustrating as this is, Young quickly rules out French as a suspect. His grief and bewilderment seem genuine. Having assessed the scene of the crime, Inspector Young must begin his hunt for suspects. Even if Young cannot ignore similarities with the Smith killings, he has little choice but to proceed with professional objectivity. Instead of chasing ghosts, he must stick to the facts in front of him. But in his heart, he may just hope this could be his chance to finally put things right. Matching the fingerprint becomes Young's top priority. Over the next six weeks, there's an extensive search of the Wairoa area. Around 4,000 men and women have their prints taken. It quickly becomes one of the largest collections of fingerprints for a criminal investigation in New Zealand police history. It's an exhausting effort, with officers working around the clock to get it done. So Inspector Young is understandably distressed when all results come back negative. Out of the thousands of prints taken, none of them belong to his killer. After three months of sustained detective work, no new leads or suspects have arisen. Just like with the Smith sisters, it is eventually decided that they must call off the investigation. Foiled again. As it happens, John Bruce Young will himself die of an illness a few years later, but not before being promoted to superintendent and briefly to the lofty rank of police commissioner. Though Inspector Young's career goes on, he will nevertheless have to live with these three unsolved murders, never sure if it was the same killer, and perhaps dreading the culprit might one day strike again. It's August 1950, two years since Herbert Brunton's murder and eight years since the Smith sisters. Both cases remain unsolved. 270 miles south of those crime scenes, a train departs Wellington train station just after 1 a.m. Patrolling the station is a caretaker, a 54-year-old man named Frederick Stade. Stade is a decorated World War I veteran and walks with a limp he sustained from a railway injury. Despite this, he's an imposing presence, tall, well-built, and able to handle most who get out of line. Stade observes a scruffy-looking, ginger-haired man attempting to open the locked door to the public toilet. Stade tells him the toilets are shut for the night. The man turns to glare at him with piercing blue eyes, 
he demands to use the staff toilets instead. Stade refuses and orders him to be on his way. The man won't listen and begins to argue. The station's telegraphist hears raised voices and peers out the window, facing the street, but he can't see anything. Moments later, he hears a chilling scream. Darting to another window that faces the station concourse, he spots Stade lying on the ground. Quickly, he telephones the control operator, telling him to check on Stade, thinking his colleague has fainted. The control operator finds Stade, but he isn't passed out. He's dead, lying in a pool of his own blood beneath a row of public payphones. Next to him is a bloody iron pipe. Wellington police arrive and quickly go into action. Examining the scene, they determine the pipe was the weapon used to strike Stade over the head, thereby killing him. The blows were savage and multiple. The police believe Stade's attacker can't have gotten far. They lock down a large portion of the city. Patrol cars are ordered to guard the main roads in and out of the area and any buses and civilian cars are to be searched before they are allowed to leave. It's 3.30 a.m. It's not yet dawn when a couple of uniformed officers enter a restaurant. They aren't here for an early breakfast. They are searching for Stade's murderer. Glancing about the diner, the officers clock a graying ginger-haired man in his 50s. Tucked away in a booth, his threadbare tweed jacket pulled tight around him, He is slumped over a half-drunk cup of coffee. His empty plate lies across the table. It's nearly 4 a.m. in midwinter. The frayed jacket and faded trousers suggest he could be a vagrant simply keeping out of the cold. But when those icy blue eyes nervously glance up at the two officers, they decide to question him. They go over and ask his name. The mumbled reply comes back, Leo Hannon. They ask Hannon about his movements. He gives short, aggravated answers. They'd expect this from any drifter. But when one of the coppers notices a few red specks of what appear to be blood on Hannon's cheek and neck, they become wary. When asked about it, Hannon shifts uncomfortably. Stammering, he claims it's from a nosebleed. He blurts out that his nose has been bleeding for days without stopping. The officers aren't convinced and take a closer look at Hannon. It's a bizarre response, one that only makes sense when they order him to stand up. Opening his jacket reveals huge, sodden blooms of fresh blood saturating his shirt. They pull him out of the booth and search him. There's more blood on his jacket and shoes. They even find a 12-millimeter piece of human flesh near the cuff of his right trouser leg. Hannon is immediately detained on suspicion of murder and taken to the police station for questioning. By morning, word is out. The Ashburton Guardian headline reads, Brutal murder, a man battered to death, suspect detained by police. Hannon, aged 50, has been in police custody for hours. They learn his criminal record goes back to 1926 for safe-breaking. They also note he has been in and out of prison for burglary and theft ever since. 
Samples have been taken of the dried blood on Hannon's skin and clothes. They will be tested to determine whether it matches Stade. By 11 a.m., Hannon is formally arrested and charged. He will face trial for the murder of Frederick Stade. It's early November, 1950. It's springtime in New Zealand, but inside a Wellington courtroom, the mood is grim. The trial of Leo Hannon is drawing to a close. Hannon anxiously sits beside his lawyer, George Joseph. In the previous days, the jury has been told all about his checkered past, his criminal convictions for theft and burglary, and his time in and out of prison. It makes for grim reading as far as a character assessment goes. It's not looking good. But the trial has the potential to take a dramatic twist. Next to take the stand is the regional pathologist in charge of Frederick State's autopsy. One Dr. Lynch. The very same Dr. Lynch who presided over the autopsies of the Smith sister killings in Wairoa eight years ago. Just as he had done in that case back in 1942, after studying the damage inflicted on Mr. Stade, Dr. Lynch has identified the killer as a left-handed individual. Leo Hannon is left-handed. Could he be about to reveal a link between the two cases? Does Hannon realize how close he is to being connected to other murders? Luckily for him, the moment passes. Happening almost 10 years apart, over 200 miles away from one another, it seems the striking similarities are overlooked, at least for the time being. But if Hannon breathes a sigh of relief, it's short-lived. His fate is soon sealed when the jury are told that the DNA test confirms the blood found on Hannon's clothes belonged to Frederick States. On Wednesday, November 8th, 1950, the jury files back in after deliberating for a grand total of 17 minutes. Hannon stands to hear the verdict, guilty. Leo Hannon is sentenced to life imprisonment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Listen closely. As a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. It's August. 1962. It's been 12 years since Hannon, now aged 61, was sentenced and sent to Auckland Prison in Paremoremo. An unremarkable man, guilty of pointless crime. Hannon has always lived as an outcast, drifting at the edges of society, only that life is now coming to an end, and what he's about to say will win the attention of the entire nation. Hannon's former lawyer, George Joseph, gets a call from the superintendent at Auckland Prison with news about Hannon's illness. I think I ought to tell you, 
Your client has been complaining of pains. He's got terminal cancer, riddled with it. Joseph is surprised to learn Hannon isn't in the hospital, that he refused to leave the penitentiary. Apparently, he's made friends inside, perhaps for the first time in his life. And so he's declared that he's happy to die where he is. Joseph requests if he can see Hannon, and the superintendent agrees to arrange a visit within a few days. It's unclear what Joseph wants to talk to his old client about, nor why they've stayed in touch over the years. Does the lawyer suspect that there's more to his client's tale? It's hard to know. At Auckland Prison, Joseph is escorted to Hannon's small, gray cell, where a guard locks him inside with a dying inmate. The lawyer steps through the steel gate and pauses for a moment as it slides shut behind him. After a moment or two, he puts down his briefcase and perches on the edge of the stiff metal bed frame. Hannon sits up and says, Have they told you I'm on the short list? Joseph nods. They both know this is the last time they'll meet. Hannon shrugs and tells his lawyer that he's not sorry that he is dying. He seems to believe he deserves death, adding, I've done some bloody awful things in my life. Joseph, perhaps sensing Hannon wants to unburden himself, or possibly suspecting it from the outset, leans in and asks if there's anything he would like to tell him. Hannon looks at his lawyer. A sad, guilty silence hangs in the air. He pauses before finally saying, Remember the Salvation Army Sallies in Wairoa? I did that one. Joseph doesn't react. He's in full lawyer mode, cool and collected, assessing his client. He asks Hannon why. Hannon explains that he did it for money. He thought the Smith sisters had a lot of cash, and he went to their home that night in August 1942 to steal it. But he claims he didn't find any. Joseph doesn't question Hannon's confession. He remembers the case, and he knows full well what Hannon is capable of. The savagery of the attack on Frederick State is testament to that. But he still has questions. He asks Hannon why the Smith sisters had their garments pulled down and if he sexually abused them. Hannon shakes his head, saying that he staged the assault. Thought I'd make it look like attempted rape in case the cops got onto me. They knew my style wasn't rape. If Joseph has difficulty reconciling the cool, calculating mind of this killer with the wild fury of the violence and the distinct carelessness of an experienced burglar missing all that cash just lying about, well, he's not the only one. But that's Leo Hannon for you. Joseph looks down at his client. Suddenly, he senses there's still more to come. The lawyer now recalls the other Wairoa axe killing, the vicious murder of a railway man six years later. He prods Hannon, saying, There was another murder in Wairoa. Hannon hangs his head. Nodding, he mutters the name. Brunton. He claims money was the motivator again, alleging someone had told him Brunton had money. Hannon snorts a laugh, 
he says that all he came away with was a half-drunk bottle of gin. The idea of there being a treasure trove hidden in the old man's derelict hut seems a stretch, but Joseph knows that Hannon's tale tracks with the official report. A report that confirmed Brunton's hand was clenched as if a bottle had been wrenched from its grip. It's the kind of detail only the killer would know. Joseph can see a weight has been lifted off his client's chest. But what should he do now? He isn't legally obligated to disclose Hannon's confession to authorities. He also has no way of proving the confession is legitimate, given Hannon's condition. Joseph also suspects that the sick convict wouldn't survive an investigation or trial in any case. He'd be proven right. Three months later, in October 1962, Leo Hannon dies. In the weeks after, the weight of the confession weighs heavily on Joseph's mind. He starts to doubt whether Hannon really was the unknown Wairoa killer. Out of curiosity, he contacts the pathologist who conducted the autopsies on both Frederick Stade and the Smith sisters, Dr. Lynch. Lynch, who identified the killer as being left-handed in both cases. The pathologist must be shocked to now realize that Hannon might have been the 1940s mystery killer from Wairoa, a man he looked at from across a courtroom in 1950. He agrees that the confession could be legitimate. Joseph is satisfied that Leo Hannon is telling the truth, that he is indeed a serial killer, responsible for at least four murders. But can he prove it? Does it matter? Who would it help? The cases are decades old. Frankly, the world has moved on. In the end, Joseph decides to do nothing. His personal interest has been satisfied. For the time being, at least. It's 1982. Leo Hannon has been dead 20 years. By now, he's a name few even remember. His lawyer, George Joseph, however, never forgot. In fact, as the years wore on, his interest in New Zealand's various unsolved murders grew. Now, whether for the sake of public interest or Driven by his own need to share the truth, he has decided to finally speak up about his client's connection to the Wairoa murders of 1942 and 1948. Joseph publishes a book titled By Person or Persons Unknown, Unsolved Murders in New Zealand. In it, he discusses both the Smith sisters and Brunton's murder. And as an addendum, he includes Hannon's deathbed confession, though he omits Hannon's name, simply calling him Client X. Even now, he only has the man's own confession to go on. Without firm evidence, he's reluctant to break the client attorney bond in naming him outright. After all, who really benefits at this point anyway? Who, indeed? Shortly after publication, Joseph receives an unexpected phone call from a man named Sherwood Young. Sherwood is a chief inspector and a liaison officer at the police national headquarters in Wellington. It seems he has followed in his father's footsteps, police commissioner John Bruce Young, 
the man who led the investigations on the Smiths and Brunton murders in the 1940s. Sherwood says that despite the countless successful investigations and a glittering career, his father never forgot the two unsolved murder cases. He tells Joseph his father died in 1952, still not knowing who the murderer was. Now, Sherwood Young, as a detective and as a dutiful son, desperately wants resolution to his father's cases. He wants to know the identity of Client X. Whether he's moved by Sherwood's appeal or feeling some guilt over not speaking out sooner, Joseph now tells Sherwood Young all about Leo Hannon. Finally, after four decades, there is a name and a confession. But the irony must bother Sherwood. He knows that his father, John Bruce Young, would have certainly been aware of the Hannon case in 1950. He just never knew Leo Hannon was also the elusive killer from Wairoa. Nobody did. Sherwood's quest doesn't stop with a phone call, though. He needs to be sure. He checks the police databases to see if Leo Hannon was in or out of prison and in the area at the time of the murders. As it turns out, he was. It's enough for Sherwood to be convinced as well. While Commissioner John Bruce Young never got the answers he wanted from his investigations, his son, Sherwood, is able to take pride in finally putting the mystery to rest. For the Young family, at least, it's case closed. Hannon was never formally charged for the murders of Annie and Rosamond Smith or Herbert Brunton. But today, he is considered to be New Zealand's first serial killer. One can only wonder, or perhaps hope, there weren't other crimes he was also responsible for that remained unsolved, forever filed away under persons unknown. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet a serial killer that stalked Minnesota in the 1980s, a man tormented by demons who terrorized young women across the state. For years, all the police had on him was a series of bizarre phone calls, tearful voice messages where he'd confessed to each crime, sometimes only hours after he'd committed them. He'd be known only as the weepy-voiced killer. Will the police ever get their man? Will the victims and their families see justice served? A deathbed confession would reveal all. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Luke Coombs. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 